0: May your word dwell in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. To wind down, um, sometimes watch one of those movies that doesn't require much investment. You know the ones I'm talking about. But inevitably they become helpful sermon illustrations. (laughs) If you're not familiar with the plot of the Bourne identity, here's the the summary. Jason Bourne, Matt Damon, is found unconscious floating in the ocean by fishermen. And he has uh, several bullet holes and bullets in his back and no recollection of who he is, how he got there. And so he sets out to find out who he is. And he quickly discovers that <clears throat> he has certain, certain instincts, certain powers. Turns out he's a highly trained agent. But even then, he wants to discover who he really is. Not, not who the world had sort of made him to be, but who he was born to be. It's actually, it's a story of identity and becoming now it's not a perfect illustration, however the point is that we too should have a deep desire to know who we are, who we were born to be. One of the reasons that uh, we get so discouraged and frustrated in the Christian life is because we forget who we are. We suffer a form, a type of spiritual amnesia. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Christians have a newborn identity. We've been born again. And so we circle back to uh, Colossians. Back in chapter 1, Paul wrote that Christians have already been reconciled to Christ's physical body through death to present us wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And so now, in Colossians 3, we're to become who we were made to be. And one day we'll be. And that is holy. Set apart for God. Dedicated to God. <clears throat> and it's all based on Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Right. This is the spiritual reality. If you're a believer, we were dead in our sins, but now you've been made alive with Christ. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Physically, you may well be sitting here in these nice new chairs, but spiritually, you are seated with Christ in heaven. And his point is that our heavenly status Ought to transform our earthly lives. Paul is making a, a logical argument. He says, "Look, if you have been raised with Christ, which you have, then, then this makes sense." He says, "Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Set it at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Where to seek Jesus?" Don't have to seek Jesus in that he's hiding from us. Some cosmic game of hide and seek. Rather, we're to actively seek the reign of Jesus in our everyday lives. Actually, have him shape our thoughts and our feelings and our attitudes. Paul says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That we are now alive gives us this new ability to live this new sort of life, this new kind of life. See, ultimately, what motivates us to be holy is actually a matter of identity. Who are you? By accepting Jesus as your Lord, you have died to yourself and those selfish and those foolish desires, and you've re-centred your life around God, around Christ. See, the Christian is actually not on a journey of self-discovery. Christ is our life, right? We know who we are. The Christian is on a journey of becoming who we were made to be. Who are you? Who are you? Look to Jesus. That's who you are. Who should you be? Look to Jesus. That's who you aim, aim to be. Christ is your life. He's the center... And the orienting center of our solar system, of our life, of everything that we do, be it our family life or our church life or our work life or our sex life, everything in life now revolves around the resurrection of Jesus who is in heaven and we're with him. In a sense, we're with him, and so we're to act like it, we're to be holy like he is holy, which means putting sin to death. Verse five: "Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. It's a kind of a spiritual violence. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You cannot take it lightly. You cannot pretend that it just doesn't matter. It's a fight to the death. You must kill sin. Um, Back in Genesis, actually, uh, God warns Cain as to to the danger of sin. And he says this, he says, Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The imagery is of a a wild animal ready to pounce on you. Think of that little sin that you are privately feeding, that you minimalize, that you trivialize. It's like having a baby lion as a pet. If you keep feeding it, that cub is going to grow. And one day, it will devour you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the very best way to kill sin, sexual or otherwise, is actually not to remove our desire for pleasure, but to renew our pleasures for eternal things. It's what Thomas Chalmers called another period. uh, What Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And so now it's time now to rid yourselves of all such things as these, as anger and rage and malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. The Bible describes our tongues as a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The way we use it when we speak to others or the way we use it when we speak about others is just so important, whether it's face-to-face, whether it's behind someone's back, whether it's online. And one of the reasons that this is just so important for, 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 for Christians Is because of who we are now in Christ Jesus. Paul writes here, he's talking about the church. Here, that is in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Within the church, all the distinctions that normally divide people along racial lines or cultural lines or social lines, they no longer apply. Christ is all means that Christ is all that matters. And he is in all of us because we are with him, no matter who you are. If you have received Christ Jesus as your Lord, then you have been filled with him. You have died, been buried with him. You have been raised with him. And you will appear with him when he comes in glory. This and nothing else is the most important thing about you. Your identity is found in him. <clears throat> it goes on. Therefore, as God's chosen holy people, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility <clears throat> and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's like we've got a new wardrobe. It's like we've got new clothes to put on. And the virtues here are all virtues of the Lord Jesus himself, aren't they? It's another way of saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in you, now put him on. For Jesus is compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient. And he has forgiven you far more than what you were called to forgive. To put on all these virtues is to put on Christ himself. And over all these virtues, he says, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so he began with um, the spiritual reality, then he described a sort of spiritual violence, and then he encourages us to put on these uh, new, these spiritual clothes. And now he outlines a, a spiritual rule. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Since, as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. It's a picture of the body ministering to the body, it's a picture of you guys ministering to one another. And as your pastor, let me assure you that there is no greater joy to to know that you are not relying on me, but that you are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I'd love this to be the case here at TMPC. Let's move beyond talking about the weather, okay? And on to ministering to one another. And when we sing, let's actually, let's actually sing. Let's actually sing It's gratitude in our, in our hearts. And he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I've been getting into, I've been getting into this book. It's, um, it's volume one. <clears throat> I think there's two or three now. It's called Every Moment Holy. And uh, it's a collection of, of prayers and liturgies for the very ordinary events of daily life. It reminds us that whatever we do, we should do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It gives voice to prayers that we didn't know how, that we needed to pray. So let me give you some, some, some examples. So there's a liturgy here for, for laundering, not money clothes I sent this one to Miriam a while back she appreciated it there's a liturgy for the changing of nappies and for the planting of flowers there's a liturgy for the ritual of a morning coffee and for the keeping of bees and for the preparation of a meal There's a lament upon finishing a beloved book. And there is a lament for the death of a dream. There's a liturgy in here for waiting in line. Let me read this to you. We've all waited in lines. It's on the same page as a liturgy for a moment of frustration at a child and a liturgy for experiencing road rage. A liturgy for waiting in line. As my life is lived in anticipation of the redemption of all things, so let my slow movement in this line be to my own heart a living parable and a teachable moment. Do not waste even my petty irritations, Lord. Use them to expose my sin and selfishness and to reshape my vision and my desire into better and holier things. Decrease my unrighteous impatience directed at circumstances and people. Increase instead my righteous longing for the moment of your return when all creation will be liberated from every futility in which it now languishes Be present in my waiting, O Lord, that I might also be present in it as a Christ bearer to those before and behind me who also wait. Here's another one it's a liturgy for those who feel awkward in social gatherings. I know that doesn't apply to any of you, does it? But for what it's worth. I know this about myself, O Lord. You have created me as one who best flourishes with daily rhythms of solace and long moments for quiet reflection. When I find myself instead in noisy, crowded spaces, amidst constant social interactions, my energies are soon depleted and I am left feeling inadequate and awkward and uncomfortable. I know this about myself, Lord. That in a room full of people, I would rather retreat into a quiet corner and flip through the pages of a book, than step beyond the walls of myself to engage another person in conversation. And this desire in and of itself is neither sin nor a virtue but simply a description of my feelings. And yet it presents me with a choice. For you have not called me to insulate my heart from others or from the discomfort I might feel in the presence of acquaintances and strangers. You have called me instead to learn to love by my small actions and choices those whose paths I cross, moment to moment, in all settings. And so despite my shyness, I would rather learn to emulate your mercies by entering the lives of others, affirming their dignity and worth simply by showing interest in the details of their lives, however awkward I might feel in the process. Give me grace, therefore, O oh God, to love others, to move toward them when my instinct is to run. And, again, and it goes on. I'm sure there's one in there for all all you extroverts as well. Paul ties all this together by giving us some examples as to how our new identities ought to reshape our relationships, right? This is where the rubber hits the road. And he'll speak to three pairs of people. The married couple, the children and their parents, and slaves and their masters. So first... Wives and husbands, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now I know that the notions of submission and headship are somewhat unpopular these days. To submit is to place yourself under the authority of another. That's not what we're on about here in the West. And yet, here it is in black and white. Now, before I go any further and attempt to defend the notion of submission, let me say very clearly that there is absolutely no place for a sinful distortion of headship or submission that results in the abuse of any kind. Whether it's in marriage, in the wider family, in the church, or anywhere else in society. There's no place for it. The kind of submission that Paul describes here is voluntary. And it does not diminish the equality or destroy the dignity of the wife. So what does fitting submission involve? <clears throat> well, I think it comes down to it comes down to respect. It's very difficult to submit to your husband if you don't respect him. Wives, honor your husband as God's appointed head over you and rejoice in his initiative to serve you. Because that is what they are called to do. He says, husbands, love your wives. What does it mean to love your wife? Paul doesn't explain it in any detail here, but he does elsewhere. He does in Ephesians 5, for example. And there, if you were were a husband, you were to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. And this means that like Jesus, you were to sacrifice everything for her good. If that means dying for her, So be it. So be it. The shape of marriage for husbands is the shape of the cross. And when husbands lead with this sort of love, the wife can more naturally follow with submission. Husband, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. That would be unloving be harsh with your wife is to fail to love her as jesus loved the church it's to abuse your your god-given headship second to children and their parents specifically to fathers he says children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the lord Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. What a word to us fathers on Father's Day. To embitter your children means to provoke them or exasperate them. And I think as fathers, as as heads of households, we can tend to do just that. We We can be overly pushy. We can be it can become unduly harsh. <coughs> we can demand too much. We can demean and belittle. Sometimes families with fathers like this can seem perfect when the kids are young. Right? The father throws his weight around, makes sure that all the kids are towing the line, they look good, that they act good, All too often, however, these children will grow to become discouraged, and things will just unravel. You, who are fathers, are to avoid provoking your children. You provoke your children when you lose your temper at them for no good reason. You provoke your children when you demand they behave in a way that's just beyond them; it's beyond their capabilities. You provoke your child when you vicariously live through them. And the opposite of provoking your child comes from realising that though they are your child, ultimately they were created by someone else and for someone else. And that means focusing on who they are in Christ and ensuring that they have a relationship with their heavenly Father. And finally, a word to to slaves and their masters. Now, I'm going to have to address the topic of slavery um, at another time. So I'm not going to kind of address that in full uh, this morning. But suffice to say, it just wasn't what we picture when we think of slavery, right? When we think of the transatlantic slave trade, when we think of modern-day slavery, that's not actually a picture of what it might have been look like in the Roman Empire. Anyway, in this context, his application for slaves is to obey their earthly masters, to work sincerely, knowing that they are ultimately working for the Lord. And his application for masters is to treat their slaves fairly. And I think we can um, rightly apply this, at least uh, derivatively, uh, to the employee-employer relationship. So likewise, employees, serve your earthly employer with sincerity of heart as if you're working for the Lord. And if you're an employer, then treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you have a CEO in heaven. You see what Paul has done? He began by urging believers to set our hearts and minds on things above. and That is his message to each of us. Wives are to look above to Christ as their example of submission. Husbands are to look above to Christ as their example of love, and children are to look above to Christ as their example of obedience, slaves are to look above to Christ as their example as their, as their fair ruler, and masters are to look above to Christ as their heavenly judge. That is how we become who we were made to be, that is holy, set apart, dedicated to God. The Christian life is a story of identity and becoming. <clears throat> King Edward VIII, um, he was recalling his boyhood as, as the Prince of Wales, and he was speaking of his father he, his father's king george the 5th is that right helen don't know all right anyway uh, he was recalling his, his childhood and he said my father was a strict disciplinarian <clears throat> and sometimes when i had done something wrong he would admonish me saying my dear boy you must always remember who you are My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. Now, interestingly, it was King Edward who eventually abdicated. Maybe his father was too harsh. And he became discouraged, or maybe, maybe he did forget who he was. Now, our father in heaven is not a strict disciplinarian. But in the same way, it says to us, my dear son, my dear daughter, when you are tempted to sin, which you will be, remember who you truly are. And the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Christians have a newborn identity. They've been born again. But I want to acknowledge that perhaps there are some people in this room for whom this is not true yet. You've been to church. You know all the rules. But you do not know yet the ruler. Would you ask Christ to raise you up and give you new life? perhaps you are a Christian and yet if you're being honest you've been extremely passive about your holiness about your spiritual growth and today God has told you to seek Jesus (coughs) so would you make a fresh commitment to seek the reign of Jesus practically in your daily life have him actually shape your thoughts and your feelings and your attitudes Perhaps you've been running the Christian race for a long time and you have now become weary, discouraged, frustrated at the sin that remains in you and you simply need to hear that you have died and that your life is now hidden with Christ. So would you fix your eyes on Jesus? For when he appears, your true identity will be fully and finally revealed with him in glory. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the spiritual reality, for those who put their faith in Jesus, that we are with him, that you have raised us up. May our lives, our earthly lives, reflect our heavenly status. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.